What did you mean when you said meditation was a transformation of consciousness? Could you speak more about training the heart? I'm trying to learn to trust myself, but it seems so often what appears to come from the heart is really greed, hatred, and delusion. How does one really learn to know the heart? What did you mean when you said that the heart must be trained? Does our Buddha nature lie in our heart? Does one have to be highly intelligent to achieve enlightenment? (laughs) First few questions about the transformation of consciousness or training the heart. In some way, those questions contain the entire teaching of the Buddha. As we've mentioned before, the mind and the heart in this meditative understanding is really the same. When we say mind in the Buddhist sense, it doesn't mean the brain or the intellect. It's that quality or faculty of consciousness, which is the knowing faculty, that which knows the object, and all of the associated mental states, which may arise in different combinations in a particular moment of consciousness. There's been an interesting discussion over the last 2,500 years of exactly where this consciousness resides, this heart-mind. Does it reside in the brain? Does it reside in the heart? Without trying to come to some definitive answer to that question, I think it's useful to at least know that at some times in meditative experience, there can be a very strong sense of consciousness emanating from the heart center, not the physical heart, but this psychic energy center in the body. Whether that energy is coming down from the brain and coming out here, or starting here and going up and out the brain, it's difficult to know. So what is this transformation of consciousness, transformation of mind, or training of the heart? The consciousness itself is pure. Consciousness is simply knowing. But along with each moment of knowing, each moment of consciousness, these different associated mental states may arise. We've talked about some of the unwholesome states like greed and hatred and fear and delusion. The wholesome ones such as mindfulness, compassion, love, wisdom. And so we can understand the training of the heart as coming down to what the Buddha called the four great efforts, which are really the effort to diminish the unwholesome factors of mind, which have already arisen, and to prevent those which haven't arisen from arising. And it's the effort to strengthen those wholesome factors of mind, the wisdom, the compassion, the love, the understanding, to strengthen those associated factors of consciousness which have already developed to make them stronger. And to cultivate those which have not yet arisen. So that's really the transformation. It's to... in the first instance, take a careful enough look at this heart-mind to see what's what, to really develop a discriminating wisdom to understand what is unskillful, what states lead to suffering, what states are skillful, are wholesome, lead to happiness. And based on our own experience of that, because we can see it, then we can begin to 
arouse these four great efforts. This is the training of the heart, the transformation of consciousness, which we're engaged in. Does one have to be intelligent to achieve enlightenment? Clearly not. Fortunate. <laughs> you know, one, our favorite, one of our favorite stories, which someone has told you know, in one of the talks about the dullard and just the Buddha finding exactly the right meditation to awaken the mind of the dullard. One of the great lessons I had in this came early on in my beginning teacher training in India after I had already sat and practiced there for quite a few years, uh, I began to sit in on some of the interviews and discussions that Munindraji would be having with different students. And one student came in for an interview, and he started talking, and Munindraji said, Oh yes, for stupid people we give Anapana. <laughs> I was really shocked <laughs> because I think in this culture we have we place a great value on intelligence it's kind of a cultural value and so hearing Meninja say that to me it sounded like this tremendous insult but what was so opening was seeing and really feeling in that moment that for Meninja it wasn't an insult at all there are smart people and there are stupid people and there are greedy people and there are loving people and for each kind of person for each kind of mind there's an appropriate meditation and that was very freeing because then we could really just discover who we are and our qualities without a self-judgment and to understand that there's a path of practice which supports the development of each kind of mind It's not the only quality that people watch the breath. It's not only for stupid people. <laughs> it's actually said to be the kind of meditation that's well suited for everybody. <laughs> I ask this question again because it still confuses me and you didn't answer it last time. <laughs> Are understanding and wisdom the same thing? When you speak of understanding, it seems to imply a general view or orientation to life, while wisdom seems to imply something more immediate and penetrating. Is understanding related to the intellect and memory? Of all the different associated mental states which arise in different combinations in each moment of consciousness there are six basic roots of all the other states there are three wholesome roots and three unwholesome roots greed, hatred and delusion and non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion these, the, these are the three Mm -hmm. or the two sets of three basic mental factors, patterns out of which so many of the others come non-delusion has different aspects or different facets and it's all aspects of, of the wisdom factor non-delusion can be understood in the Pali word, it's called jnana, which means insight. And this is the kind of wisdom that actually comes about in the progress of the meditation as we progress through different stages. They're called jnanas, or stages of insight. And we begin to see this discrimination between mind 
mental and physical phenomena. That's a jnana, that's a kind of wisdom. Begin to see the cause and effect. The fact that desire arises in the mind, there's an intention, the body moves. Seeing that clearly is an insight, jnana. This is a kind or an aspect of non-delusion. And there's a whole series of these insights up until and including enlightenment. Another aspect of non-delusion is called panya, or wisdom. And this aspect refers to the clear seeing of the three characteristics of impermanence, of selflessness, of of, uh, dukkha. So that's just another side of non-delusion. Another side of it is called right understanding or right view. This aspect has to do with a beginning to see clearly, even to some extent, the law of cause and effect, the law of karma. We begin to understand how karma is working. It's part of right understanding. Develop insight into the Four Noble Truths, the suffering and its cause and the end and the path leading to the end. So really this question about the difference between understanding and wisdom, they're all aspects of that one factor of non-delusion. How is it that we can do several things at once and be aware of none of it? (laughs) Where does the mind go when we are not aware? Why doesn't mindfulness just happen naturally? It's not that the mind goes someplace else. The mind in this sense means consciousness. The mind is arising in every moment with a particular object. What is not arising is the particular factor of mindfulness. So just to distinguish mindfulness from knowing, this is a critical distinction, think about when you are lost in a thought. You know, for 30 seconds or a minute or 10 minutes, you're really lost in it. Consciousness is there. You're not unconscious. And if somebody asked you afterwards what you were thinking, you could probably tell them. And yet, during that time that you're lost in a thought, mindfulness is not present. We don't know that we're thinking. We're not recollecting. We're not aware that we're thinking. Consciousness is there. Mindfulness is not. And so when we're busy and doing several things at once, the consciousness... Consciousness is happening. We're not unconscious. But we're not mindful because the mindfulness is not present. Why it doesn't simply arise naturally? What arises naturally or what becomes habituated is that which has been practiced. There are two categories of of consciousness. It's called prompted and unprompted. Prompted means those kinds of consciousness with different associated states which need prompting, which which we really have to work to arouse. Unprompted means these qualities have been so well practiced that they arise spontaneously. And so, for example, if we in our lives make the habit of practicing generosity. And we just, we take opportunities to practice that. Soon in our lives it becomes unprompted. It just arises by itself. In just the same way as mindfulness is practiced, it becomes unprompted. It starts to happen by itself. And perhaps you've had a minute or two, you know, where it's just happening. There's no great effort to be mindful and falls away and then with continual practice this factor gets very strong
When I see another person doing an unskillful action such as harming others, I notice judgment and anger arising in myself. Is there a way of communicating to the aggressor without getting caught in the cycle of judgment and anger? I think that what is critical to see in that situation is that the action of the other person is not the cause of our anger and it's not the cause of our judgment. Because as long as we are assigning blame to the other person and to the action, thinking that's what's causing the anger in my mind, so then we're really locked into that. If we can see that the anger and judgment is our own responsibility, and that it's arising and staying because we are identifying with it. We're relating to that anger in such a way that's feeding it. And one of the ways that we feed it is by blaming. And the more we blame, the more we strengthen that anger in ourselves. If we can take the time, and the time might be a minute or five minutes or an hour or a day, however long it takes, if we can really look at the anger in ourselves and look carefully at how we're relating to it, how we're getting hooked, how we're getting identified with it, that's our job. It has nothing to do with the external circumstance. If the mindfulness, if the investigation is strong enough, it is actually possible to unhook from that identification. If we spend the time doing that, and practice doing that, it then becomes much easier to communicate to the person doing the unskillful action. Because we can communicate from a place of our own mental ease can really come from a place of much greater compassion. The communication itself becomes more effective. <coughs> and when somebody's very angry at you and judgmental of you and is trying to communicate with that energy, what's the response? Very often it's just putting up some kind of defense because it's a very aggressive energy. And so what we do energetically is create some kind of barrier, a wall, you know, keeping that energy out. So there's not much contact. Sometimes the situation might call for a response before we have the time to kind of work out our own anger or judgment. I think there's a lot to learn in terms of communication skills. So that even if we may be feeling or having those responses, we can learn how to communicate and use language in a way that is not reinforcing that. And that's another whole discipline, another whole learning. What is sleep? Munindraji called it the worldling's highest pleasure. <laughs> There's a kind, a special kind of consciousness which is called bhavanga consciousness. And that is the kind of consciousness that happens in sleep. This is kind of a technical point of interest. At the time of death, there's a sign in the mind. A sign arises in the mind which in some way indicates either through symbol or through vision of where the rebirth consciousness will take place. The sign or vision, that sign that arises just at the time of death becomes the object for bhavanga consciousness throughout the whole next life. 
But in Bhavanga consciousness, as we know, in that sleep consciousness, there's not enough alertness of mind to actually know what's happening. We're not aware, we're not mindful. It's an extremely subtle kind of consciousness. When we're sitting in practice, you know, and you find that you can't keep the body erect, what's happening is that in between moments of active consciousness, these bhavanga moments are arising. And that happens all the time anyway, even in somebody very alert and energetic. There are some number of bhavanga moments always arising. But if too many of them arise in a row, so we find that we're nodding or we're, we're falling down. Because that consciousness doesn't have the power to keep the body erect. Which is why, why it happens when we fall asleep, the body falls over. Here are two questions which don't sound like they're the same question, but I think they're related. Joseph, I have found grunts, groans, howls, and such to hasten unpleasant feelings from the body, especially anger and fear. Do yogis ever make loud sounds, or only the roar of the lion at enlightenment? Of the six primary objects, sight, sound, taste, etc., to which do feelings belong, mind or touch? The connection between these two questions is that feelings, which is that quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, arises together with each of the six objects. That feeling is a common mental factor, which means it arises in every moment of consciousness. So whether we're seeing or hearing or smelling or thinking or some emotion, every state, every moment with an object arising, it has an associated feeling quality. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neither. One of the important aspects of right understanding to bring to the practice is that we are not trying to get rid of unpleasant feelings. That's not the purpose of the practice because if we're trying to get rid of unpleasant feelings, actually what's being cultivated at that time is aversion to the unpleasant and desire for the pleasant. The purpose or the process of the mindfulness practice is the purification of consciousness of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so as pleasant or unpleasant feelings arise, which they do in every moment, what is most important is our relationship to those feelings. If the relationship is one of mindfulness, that is simply noticing, simply observing, in that moment of mindfulness, the process of purification is happening. Because in that moment, there's no greed, there's no aversion, there's no delusion. This is a very hard transition to make in terms of understanding that the practice is really not about feeling good. But that's such a strong, it's really a strong condition among we We want to feel good and we don't like feeling bad. But what's happening in the meditation is something entirely different. Which is this purification of the heart. So that we can open to pleasant or unpleasant with equanimity, with impartiality. That takes a lot of training. Because our conditioning goes the other way. 
These are a few related questions also. I know there are stories of criminals becoming enlightened. How about great lovers or sex maniacs? (laughs) My clinging to sexual energy is very strong and I don't seem to be getting by it. Are there any redeeming qualities to love with desire? Since that state of mind is so powerful and predominant, any suggestions besides mindfulness on how to work with it? (laughs) If you want your love relationships to be of the meta variety, are you doomed to celibacy? (laughs) This must have been this week for... uh, Is it possible to have a sexual relationship with someone with no desire present? Do you know anyone who has done this successfully? (laughs) Um, I don't know particularly of sex maniacs getting enlightened. (laughs) But there definitely are stories from the Buddhist time of people who either had strong desire, you know, and were working with that kind of desire, uh, and also stories, and I think we mentioned one of them, the Buddhist cousin Nanda, you know, who left to become a monk the day he was supposed to get married, and the Buddha promised him those celestial nymphs as an incentive. (laughs) But somehow in the course of the practice, the motivation was transformed and he did become enlightened. It's also the story of a woman who, in the time of the Buddha, was this very beautiful courtesan, you know, and who really had refined the arts of love and that was her profession. And from the story, you know, of those times, I gather it was at that time really an honored profession. It's not how we might look at it today. Uh, And she also was very inspired by the teachings of the Buddha and reached, uh, I think, at least the first stage of enlightenment. And so it's clear that it's with all of us, you know, on the path, sexual and sensual desire is present. It's a strong force. There is a way to work with it and to understand it that actually allows us to proceed on the path. One of the great things to learn about desire in this kind of situation where there is a commitment to celibacy for a period of time, there's a very deep learning that can take place about the impermanent nature of desire. Because we can see desire, and this actually could be desire for anything. It could be sexual desire, desire for food, desire to see something. It's extremely interesting to watch a strong desire arise in the mind and to have that feeling that the only way to deal with the desire or to process it or to relate to it is in some way to gratify it because the desire is so strong and compelling and yet to have enough strength of mind in the practice to just hang in there with it to watch it as a desire and to see that by itself it goes away. This is a tremendously freeing insight because we begin to understand that we don't necessarily have to fulfill desires when they arise because they are going to leave by themselves. They're part of this great wheel of impermanence. And to actually watch our own experience of what it's like when the desire is very compelling and strong and how much it, it fills us 
And then to watch the feeling as it disappears and the sense of relief, the sense of spaciousness. It's only, it's said, at the third stage of enlightenment that sensual desire is uprooted. And so up until that point, it's going to be around, you know, in some form or many forms or another. So the whole question of relationship, and I'm trying to understand, okay, what does an intimate relationship mean? I think what we have to do is to bring as much awareness as possible just to see, just to understand what components of our feelings are really metta. What components of the feelings are desire. Not in the sense of judgment and not in the sense of blame and not in the sense of guilt because Acknowledging that that desire is going to be there until we're anagamis. That's third third stage. And so to see, to acknowledge this, that desire is there, it's part of how I'm relating. And also to see the other part. If we can just see, if we can understand the complexity of these different forces... I think that what will happen is there's a possibility of being less compulsively driven by the desire. It's not that it's not going to be there, and it's not that we never act on it, because we will. But if we see it clearly, and we're not confusing it with other aspects, then there's a little more space, there's a little more balance. Sometimes we act, sometimes we don't act. And there's a, there's a kind of harmony then between that feeling of metta and the feeling of desire when it's mixed in. Clear seeing, I think, is really the key to working with both of these aspects. How is it that some teachers can attain deep levels of wisdom yet continue to act so unskillfully? Why doesn't one condition the other? During the Buddha's time, there were people who came to full enlightenment at hearing the Buddha's words because their minds were so pure. They had done no vipassana. Today, there are teachers of deep insight who have performed very unskillful actions. Can you speak to the relationship between the development of wisdom and purification? What is the process for purification outside Vipassana, as in those at the time of the Buddha? I think there are different aspects of understanding that question. One is the understanding that purification and enlightenment happens in stages. And at different stages, different unwholesome qualities are uprooted. At the first stage of enlightenment, where there is really a clear, a very clear seeing of selflessness, of anatta, there are still many unwholesome tendencies which remain. I thought I'd just read you a few of the categories of unwholesome tendencies. There are times when I I just love the Theravada lists. (laughs) There are the defilements, the wrongnesses, the worldly states, kinds of avarice, perversions, ties, bad ways, cankers, floods, bonds, hindrances, inherent tendencies, clingings, stains, unprofitable courses of action, unprofitable thought arisings, and so on. These are just 
categorizations of different of the unwholesome tendencies. I just wanted to read one little part here. In the case of the defilements, which is just one, one particular list, wrong view and uncertainty are eliminated at the first stage of enlightenment. Hatred is eliminated, eliminated by the third. Greed, delusion, conceit, mental stiffness, agitation, conscienceless,ness and shamelessness are eliminated only by the last stage of enlightenment. And so you see that somebody can actually have quite a deep understanding and still it's only the beginning. There's still a lot of work to do. And so I think it's helpful to be able to see with discriminating wisdom, to appreciate in somebody their wisdom, and to recognize the work that's yet to be done. And that way we we ourselves don't get caught in a lot of judgment or disillusionment, because we, we have a clearer sense of the whole picture. That's one piece. The other piece is that as we're working at these levels, as consciousness becomes more refined, the states of mind become extremely subtle. And it's very easy to mistake one kind of state for another. And this can happen even with very experienced teachers. It's it's not always very easy to determine just in a particular moment what a particular experience may be. And so it's also possible that people may have what they think are genuine realization experiences and they may not be which may also explain why people get involved in wrong kinds of behavior and yet seemingly have realized certain levels. A lot of care is needed. A psychologist friend says sociopaths feel no pain in the mind for the horrific things they do. How does Buddhist psychology explain this? In the Buddhist psychology, there are actually these two mental factors which have directly to do with that mental illness. And I think in different of the talks they've been mentioned, The Pali words Ahiri and Otapa, which translated as moral shame and moral dread. Again, the English is not such a good translation, but it's that sense of conscience. It's just that sense of sensitivity to wrongdoing, sensitivity to unwholesome states. In the Buddhist texts, these two mental factors are called the light of the world, the guardians of the world. Because when they're absent, any kind of actions can be done. And I just, just today I received one of the Amnesty International newsletters. You know, and they just catalog the different human rights abuses around the world. And it really is amazing how people can treat other people. And it's very much because 
these factors of mind have not been developed, have not been cultivated. But there is no moral shame, moral dread. There's no sense of conscience. Um, and one of the both difficult and beautiful things in the course of a retreat is that we become increasingly sensitive you know, in this regard. And I remember so many times in my practice where I would think back, or just quite spontaneously, a memory would arise of something that I had done unskillful that at the time I didn't even realize was unskillful. You know, there was just so much delusion in the mind. And suddenly it comes up full force and that feeling really of remorse and, and sometimes shock you know, that could have done it. But that itself is the refinement of these two factors. It's like we're beginning to awaken those in the mind and they're a very powerful force for humanity in the world. So even as you know, these memories may come up, I think they should be seen in the light of uh, a real maturing of these factors. There's a whole bunch which again are around a theme. To prove the mind is not self, it is often pointed out that we have no control of our mental activity, that it is not me or mine. But it is also often said that with a high level of training, the mind becomes tame, responsive, and controlled. Does it follow then that if you think the mind is self, it's not? But when through long practice you realize it's not, then it is. (laughs) Or what? (laughs) Could you please go over again who's efforting? (laughs) Why isn't this just another mental factor to observe and outside of our control? This is a second request. With all this flow of arising and passing, within all this play of elements, according to the laws of nature and karma, could you say something about choice? The Abhidhamma teaches that there is no self in this absolute sense, because it cannot be found among the elements. If a person achieves this insight and thus understands the self to be absolutely non-existence, how can they still be an agent of love and compassion? I think all of these questions have to do with a certain understanding or confusion of control and lawfulness. When we say that Selflessness is experienced through seeing that things are out of control. What that means is that events arise because of conditions, not because of our will. Now, will may be one of the conditions for things to arise. And so it's possible to have an understanding of the lawfulness of phenomena, of how things can be developed without the sense of things arising because of some command. Just as as an example, which I think you've probably experienced. You can't command the mind 
don't think. You can commit it, but it's probably going to think anyway. You can't command the mind Okay, become concentrated. Become mindful. Be free of anger. And so in that sense, it's out of control. It's out of one's control. It's also true to say that we can understand the laws which govern the development of certain factors. So we can understand what are the conditions necessary to create a silent mind. We can understand the conditions which are necessary to develop concentration or to develop mindfulness or to develop compassion. In the understanding of the conditions, we could use the word control in another way and say, yes, there is some control. We can develop these things. There's a way to do it. But that kind of control simply comes from an understanding of the nature of the conditions. It's not the kind of control of ownership. It's not because I own something and I can command it to happen. Rather, it comes out of wisdom. You see, yes, this, this, this. These are the conditions for something to arise. And so in the making of effort, effort is one of the mental factors. It has a specific quality. There's a specific function. It works in a particular way. If we understand that effort is one of the conditions for certain wholesome states to arise, from that understanding and from that faith that it's true, the effort factor begins to work. It doesn't belong to anyone. There's no one behind it. There's simply the understanding of the conditions. In exactly the same way with compassion, it's not that there is someone who becomes an agent of compassion. It's not that compassion comes through some being. Rather, compassion is a quality, is a factor of mind which has a particular functioning. It works in a particular way. It's compassion which is compassionate. And it's love which is loving. And it's wisdom which is wise. And it's greed which is greedy. It's not that there's someone through whom all of these are working. Very different, very different understanding. And so the emptiness of self it's not even that the self is there and somehow we have to get rid of it. It's not there in the first place. What's there are these different factors of mind arising in a particular moment, doing their thing. But what happens is, because of some form of delusion in the mind, there is also a process, very often, of identification with various of these factors. And so compassion comes along and we say, yes, I'm compassionate. That's extra. That's just another process going on. It doesn't refer to anything that's actually there. It's just a little process. Mine. Mindfulness has this amazing power to free this process from that identifying factor. When mindfulness is present, there's no identification with with what's happening. And so then all of these elements are just working by themselves. It's very 
spacious. There was a writer by the name of Wei Wu Wei, who actually, I think, was an Englishman living in Asia. He wrote many wonderful books. He had a very uh, very peculiar kind of mind. Uh, Extremely incisive. And his books are just filled with little aphorisms and quips and pointed statements. He said... That attachment or identification with the idea of self is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> the image <laughs> of the dog barking up a tree if it's not there. That's what we're doing. You know, we're just revolving around something, our lives are revolving around something that's not actually there. And so a lot of the practice is seeing that, is paying enough attention to what really is going on moment after moment so that we can see. We can see what's there and we can see what's not there. And stop barking. Okay, so again, just as a kind of model or image, it's not that these qualities are happening to anybody or working through us. They're simply arising in a particular moment of consciousness and manifesting their nature. Might rebirth occur from deva realm to human realm? Might a deva being choose or desire this? I'd also love to hear more about Buddhist cosmology, especially the devas. What are the hundred thousand world systems? Are they written about in the Abhidhamma or other Buddhist scriptures? Allah, the Buddha's disciple with the wise eye. What are world systems? I think Sharon's going to give a whole talk on Buddhist cosmology. And this is a great sacrifice on my part. (laughs) (laughs) Because I really love to talk about this stuff. So I'm practicing renunciation. <laughs> okay, maybe maybe just one or two last questions. I feel that my whole life I've real uh, I've rarely really paid attention to myself, rarely listened internally. Rather I've become quite good at listening externally perceiving how I think others would like me to be, and being that, all unconsciously. Through the practice, I've begun to pay attention to myself, to see how painfully other-directed I've been, and to develop an independent sense of self. I'd appreciate it if you'd comment on this process, and also on the relationship between finding a sense of self, personality development, and losing a sense of self, anatta. Is there any danger of trying to put the cart before the horse? Mm. This question of really developing a sense of self and also of seeing the selfless nature, although the words sound contradictory, are quite unified as a process. 
Because when we look to see what it means to develop a sense of self, you know, in, this, in the sense of psychological health, I think that what that means experientially is learning to see clearly and to accept all the different parts of who we are. That as long as we are judging parts of ourselves or denying and creating a persona simply based on others' wishes or perceptions, it's like we're cut off, we're not seeing, we're not accepting actually what's here moment to moment. You know, all the good qualities and the shadow side and the dark things. And so what it means to develop a strong sense of self in the psychological mode is a lot of the beginning of our practice is just sitting back and observing and being willing to experience all of the different parts. We accept this and we accept this and we accept this and we see it. This creates a very strong foundation, a very strong sense of confidence because we're not split inside. We're willing to see the whole picture. We're willing to open to it. We're willing to accept the whole package. Based on this acceptance, and it's only when there's some level of this acceptance, that we can begin to bring a very focused awareness in a momentary way to see the impermanent nature of all of these things. We begin to see that all of the thoughts and feelings and emotions and sensations in the body, they are all momentary, very, very impermanent, constantly in flux. And so, from that place of acceptance, of genuine acceptance, where we're really open, we see the different parts, it's at that point that we can also see that they don't belong to anyone. That they are simply passing phenomena, arising and passing away. So from the place of acceptance, we develop insight into anatta, into selflessness. They're not contradictory. It's just using the language, one to describe a place of psychological balance, and the other to describe a place of meditative insight. And I think both are extremely important. And in fact, the meditative insight really has to be built on that foundation of acceptance. One last a little technical question, but the question was, what is Pali? How does it relate to Sanskrit? Since we've been throwing in assorted Pali words, um, Pali is the vernacular language that was spoken um, in northern India, in a particular part of northern India, uh, during the time of the Buddha. Sanskrit was the literary or educated language. And one of the aspects of the Buddha's teaching that was actually quite radical for his time was his use of common language, of ordinary language, because it seems that for the most part the priestly class in the traditional culture all spoke very refined language, which was Sanskrit. The Buddha's intention was really to awaken people. And so he used the language which, which people could hear and understand. Um, so that's, that's what Pali is. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.